Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. A standard house costs about twice as much in Canada than in the United States. After a brief COVID-19-inflicted decline, home prices in this country have risen 30% since 2020. The idea of a leave-it-to-beaver house with a white picket fence is simply out of reach for most first-time home buyers. Meet Roby Bowers, the president and CEO of the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. It was originally established after the Second World War to help returning veterans find housing. Today, it's about improving access to housing overall. And this is Bob Dugan, the chief economist at the CMHC. He crunches the numbers to provide Bowers with the forecasts necessary to help guide the organization, and he doesn't like the numbers he sees. They join us now. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Michael. We really appreciate the invitation, and we really support the great work of the C.D. Howe Institute. Bob, great to see you again. We've been speaking for years about these issues as well. Absolutely, and it's a pleasure to be here, and hopefully we'll have a good conversation. Now, despite an almost 500 basis point increase in interest rates, Bob, you had warned this summer about housing affordability deteriorating if we don't do something about it. Romy, have we done anything about it? So uh, if I could take a bit of a step back, Michael, um, I agree that housing affordability is a really critical issue for our country. It's really important to address because our future prosperity really depends on it. And from CMAT's perspective, the fundamental issue that is underlying uh, the lack of housing affordability in Canada is the mismatch between the demand for housing and supply. And, and this is a problem that's developed over uh, many decades, and we feel that we need to create uh, housing across the housing continuum. And we've actually quantified, and I should say Bob's team has actually quantified the number of housing units that we need. We estimate that between now and 2030, we have to create 5.8 million units of housing. But Bob, if I recall correctly, we don't create any more than 250,000 net new homes a year in this country. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, in a very good year, like we had in 2021, we built 271,000 homes, and that's the highest number I can remember since I've started at CMHC. So uh, to get that you know, extra construction that Romy's talking about, we need to essentially double the pace of housing starts each and every year between now and 2030. Uh, it's a difficult task. I mean, you know, business as usual methods of construction aren't going to work. We're going to need to bring some kind of innovation to the sector and do things in a new in, uh, way if we want to use the existing capital. And, in, you know, because labor costs are high right now, interest rates are high. It's not a very hospitable environment for building. So we have to find a way to make building, you know, work under these challenging circumstances. And so it is a, it is a huge challenge. It also, I think, involves, and, and Romy probably wants to speak to this, cooperation between different levels of government, between the government and the private sector. I think it's a all hands on deck kind of approach where everyone has to get involved because I don't think any one of us on our own have the tools to solve this problem. It's a, it's going to be require all hands on deck, everyone getting involved and working together to find a way to build homes. Yeah, Romy, uh, high interest rates are being blamed for the collapse in new home building intentions. How do we balance the cost of borrowing with the cost of not building those new homes. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And uh, as you know, real estate uh, is a very interest-sensitive uh, asset class, and the uh, there's been a, you know, a real pullback in the pipeline uh, because of high interest rates. One of the things that CMHC is doing is we do provide uh, um, mortgage insurance for purposeful rental. And our pipeline is actually quite strong in that. So we're using the tools that we have to uh, blunt some of the impacts of the high interest rates. And and we view the uh, that we we support the interest rate uh, 
uh, policy of the Bank of Canada. So we absolutely need to get inflation under control. But uh, we view this as a more of a shorter term uh, problem. We really need to think medium and long term in terms of really addressing the housing supply the gap by doing some of the things that, that Bob mentioned, really looking at how we actually produce housing in Canada and looking at the barriers to housing production across all levels of society. I wonder how much those barriers are tied to um, the fact that we're still building houses the way we've been building them for the past 100 years, uh, or the fact that there's a tremendous amount of red tape. Some developers argue that a purpose-built rental unit can take anywhere from eight to nine years from concept to the point where someone could actually move in. No, so I, I agree with that. And uh, recently, the federal government launched a new program called the Housing Accelerator Fund. And the purpose of that fund is to really work with municipal governments to, uh, to, to, to you know, sort of uh, basically make the process of uh, building housing easier by getting rid of that red tape, making sure that the municipalities have the tools to make the, the planning process as easy as possible, and also to create incentives to provide the right type of housing and that are needed in communities across Canada. And I think one of the interesting things about that Housing Accelerator Fund as well is, you know, housing is very local. And so this allows the municipalities to, municipalities to look at their own processes. And because one size doesn't necessarily fit all, they can sort of look at their own processes and identify where the red tape is in, tape is in their municipality, because it might be different from municipality to municipality, what the main issues are that are slowing things down. So it's, I think it takes advantage of that local perspective. That one size fits all thing is just simply not possible in this environment. That's right. And I, I want to make, make it clear that uh, uh, in, in housing, sometimes people like to uh, point the finger at other actors in this space. And when, we, when we're talking about the Housing Accelerator Fund, the intention is not to uh, point the finger at municipality. It's really to work together with municipalities to understand things that are happening at the local level and thinking about how the federal government can support them in doing their job. So I just wanted to make that, make that point as well. Give me some examples of some of the work that you've done with that program, and is it seeing success? So it's just that uh, it was the the application was launched this summer, so it's in early days, but we're seeing some very interesting applications come in. So I'll give you, I'll give you some of the examples of some of the things, so the proposals that have been coming in through the municipalities, for, and things like using technology for the permitting process. That's a very easy way to really accelerate that process. It's about zoning reform, so that when you look at uh, you know cities like Toronto, where I live. Uh, until very recently, it was really difficult to create uh, purposeful rental in many neighborhoods. And in fact, if you wanted to build anything other than uh, a detached uh, family home, it, you couldn't really do that in many areas of, uh, of Toronto. And that applies to many other communities across Canada as well. So the Housing Accelerator Fund really helps municipalities provide a little bit of incentive to make some of those tough uh, you know, zoning and other local changes that are really required to support building all types of housing that Canadians need. It really is remarkable when you look at a map of, say, the city of Toronto as, as an example, and it's heat mapped based upon the type of zoning that is allowed. Uh, we are making some changes. It's it's no longer single family homes in areas like East York and around the, 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 the downtown core. But, you know, maybe, Bob, you can give me some insight into uh, the numbers behind something like that. You make a change to a zone in a given area. How long before the heat map really sees any relevance uh, to the plan? Well, I, I mean, I think you mentioned earlier how how some of the time lags between you know when you want to start building something and when people can move in. And so, 
to make a difference to the heat map in terms of the affordability pressures can take some time. And so um, hopefully those changes result in, in transmit fairly quickly to, to the zoning requirements and, 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 and whatever local you know, conditions for, for building occur. But for affordability, which is our main concern, there's still a lag involved. And, and so you mentioned eight, nine years for, for large multifamily sort of apartment structures. That's a long time to wait because we have a problem right now. And so uh, we have to, you know, we have to get on it. It's, it's, it's an urgent problem, but it takes time to solve with supply because you can't just create supply out of thin air. What about the supply of labor? How do we address the shortages that have been hampering housing starts? Great question. I mean, that, that is a challenge because, you know, the unemployment rate has come up a little bit in recent months. I think last last Friday we learned that it stayed at 5.5%. That's up from, you know, closer to 5% a few months ago, but it's still very, very low. So we need to find more efficient ways to use that labor right now. I mean, another option is maybe if we can get you know, continue with immigration with targeted sort of prof- uh, tradespeople that can come and, and, and take some of those jobs. Um, th- that, that can be helpful. It, it t- that takes some time. It's not an instant solution, but it takes some time. But we need to also make use of, you know, better, better technology, you know, more productivity in the building sector because labor is a constraint right now and we have to bring down the costs of construction per unit in order to increase affordability as well. And that's something that, you know, changing the way we build things by using innovation can help bring those costs per units down and hopefully help with affordability because, you know, if you're building something at $1,000 a square foot, it's not going to be affordable. And if you can't reduce the price because labor costs are high, interest rates are high, material costs are high, you have to find some way to deal with that. And, and innovation is, is, is really, the, I think, a key to that. And I want to point out there are entrepreneurs across Canada who are doing really amazing things in terms of uh, productivity and innovation in the construction sector. And I think the message is we need to really scale that up. Given the need for more housing, we need to you know tap on the uh, you know the entrepreneurial spirit of Canadians and apply that to the construction sector, which you know, you know I think in the past has been characterized by low productivity. Well, as as a big technology nerd myself, this is right. I'm fascinated by what kind of entrepreneurial and innovative means we can employ to to build new housing. And all I can think of is 3D printed houses is a a big thing, but it it lacks scale at this point. Uh, What can we do that's, that's sooner rather than later? So, uh, if you look at uh, examples in Europe, uh, Europe, in Europe there is uh, more examples of you know factory built houses when there where there are uh, you know facilities to create housing in sort of panelization or using uh, technology to create most of the housing components on site within a manufactured environment and do the assembly on site. So, I think uh, there are small examples of that throughout Canada, but I think it's really scaling up examples uh, like, like that to provide that scale that we need for mass construction of housing. Almost like what Henry Ford did with the assembly line for the automotive industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. I you, you bring up Europe, and, and I wonder if there are some opportunities for us to look to success stories in other countries. Recently, I was, I was reading about Vienna and how something like four out of five people who live in Vienna don't own their homes, their rentals, and it's because the municipality decided that this was something that was important and needed to be done. And they weren't just going to make them low-income housing where you sort of sequester people of a certain economic 
uh, capability in a particular area, because we've known, in, particularly in Toronto with Regent Park, et cetera, that that doesn't work. You need to broaden it out to all different classes, uh, economically speaking. Are those the kinds of things that you're talking about? I think we have to look at every single option. And, and I think the Vienna example is interesting. I think the first lesson about Vienna is that Vienna has invested in you know social community housing for decades. One of the reasons why we're having this affordability issue in Canada right now is that the federal government uh, has not did not participate as actively in housing over the last three decades as it did in the past. And, uh, and I think uh, when you look at the social housing stock, uh, as uh, compared to other countries, we Canada has one of the lowest levels of social housing of the OECD countries. So I think we need to provide more investments there to provide housing for, for those Canadians who the market does not assert. So that's one thing. The second thing is I, I do think that there is an opportunity in Canada to think about rental housing a little bit differently. And, and at CMHC, we're very uh, bullish on the importance of purpose-built rental. And purposeful rental, not just for lower-income Canadians, but all across the housing continuum. We feel that there is a, a great societal benefit to having a much more robust stock of rental housing available uh, in, in all our cities and in rural areas as well. And uh, I think uh, there are many opportunities to support the rental construction sector. Considering this podcast is focused on public policy, um, let me sort of take this down perhaps an uncomfortable direction a little bit here, and that is, do we have the political will to talk about things when we use terms like social housing? I can imagine within certain quarters, there'd be a lot of pushback at the concept that the feds ought to be building homes. That's fair enough. And uh, when you look at the programs that uh, CMHG has, we're actually not building homes. We're actually providing the low-cost financing and grants for others to build homes. So I'm not uh, suggesting that uh, the federal government should get into the uh, the business of home building. I think there's uh, many organizations and you know either in the private sector or the public sector who have the capability to do that. So m- my view is that the federal government has to use the tools that it has, and and the biggest one is uh, our, our fiscal might to incent uh, more activity in this area. So then is the carrot that there's a, a deep discount in the cost of borrowing associated with building something like that? Is is that really the, the financial aspect you're talking about? Yeah, that's right. Because uh, the federal government can borrow at uh, very low cost and we can pass on the low cost financing to those who are uh, willing to provide the housing that Canadians need. There's a viral article from the satirical newspaper, The Beaverton, that reads, country with massive housing shortage, not sure what to do with all these empty office buildings. I I know it's a joke article, but I also know it's almost impossible to build affordable housing with the footprint of these massive towers in Toronto, Vancouver, and elsewhere. Or is it? So um, I think there is, like like anything in housing, there's no silver bullet. And uh, we've actually done analysis of different types of commercial buildings and identify the certain types, the types of buildings that have the uh, floor print that is most suitable for conversion. So we need to focus on those buildings. And, and, and I think in those situations, conversion is a great option. But in many other cases, commercial buildings are not really suitable for, for residential. So you really need to divide uh, your efforts in terms of uh, identifying the opportunities that make most sense from a housing perspective. Yeah, I guess everybody wants a window, and that's a pretty remarkable footprint on any given floor. You're going to have a big donut hole in the, in the middle. That, that's uh, 
that's it. But, but if you look at uh, cities like Calgary, they've done a great job, honestly, of uh, doing some conversions. So there's many examples in Canada of conversions that, that have worked, but you need to choose them very selectively because some conversions can be very expensive and it's actually easier to just start from scratch versus doing a conversion. Well, uh, we've spoken in the past, um, you know, pre-pandemic, we saw millennials driving until they could afford to buy a home. Are we going to see the rise of the suburbs again? Well, he, he, you know, s- certainly in some parts of the country, that's that's possible because, um, you know, uh, in smaller cities, the drive till you qualify doesn't involve as much of a trade-off. And so perhaps in places like, uh, you know, Ottawa and small, smaller CMAs, that, that's more feasible. But I think in, in places like Toronto and Vancouver, I mean, that trade-off is fairly high because, you know, you have to go fairly far now. And in places like Vancouver and Toronto, there isn't necessarily enough land available for that. And so... I think density is very important for, for, for this kind of thing, higher density housing. And so, um, as I mentioned earlier, that does take time. There are delays between, you know, sort of the, the planning and the construction of these kinds of things. But I think higher density housing is also more compatible with environmental goals as well. Do, you know, the, the, the more you get into this urban sprawl, the more you have people potentially in cars, idling their way down the 401 to, to, to get to work not necessarily a good thing. And so I think higher density housing, and then when we start thinking about higher density housing, we've certainly had some success in terms of condo construction in places like Toronto and Vancouver over recent years. But I think we have to see more uh, of the right types of units. So things like, you know, three bedroom apartments for families, because if you have, if you have three or four children and you need a bigger unit, that, that bachelor condo unit isn't necessarily going to meet the needs of your family. And so there's kind of a missing uh, housing supply where, you know, you go from very small apartments and condos to townhomes, but there's, you know, you have to bridge that gap in the middle. And and I'm, I'm using the word condo here, but maybe we have to look at the construction of rental units as well, because, you know, sometimes condos do get rented out by the investors, but, you know, we need purpose-built rental, as Romy was saying earlier, but the right kind of purpose-built rental that is affordable to families with children and gives them an adequate place to live and raise those children. And Michael, I, I just like to point out, you know, when you look at uh, great cities like Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal, that some of them are, you know, 50% uh, less dense than, than international comparison. So I feel like as Canadians, we have a long way to go in terms of yeah. increasing uh, densification in the cities. And there are very big uh, climate advantages, but there's also economic advantages as well. If you actually densify cities, you can use the existing infrastructure and that uh, reduces the cost of housing as well. Uh, in terms of economic advantages too, we were talking about rental earlier, but rental actually is very good for promoting labor mobility. It's much easier to move when you don't have to sell a house. So it, it promotes labor mobility, which is very efficient for the uh, local economy as well. Bob, from an economics perspective, if there's one thing the listener of this conversation should walk away with, what should it be? Well, you know, with respect to housing, you know, we, we do have an affordability problem in Canada, and we think that the main issue behind that is insufficient supply. Uh, Romy talked about the 5.8 million units that have to be built between now and, and, and 2030, but we estimate that the supply gap right now is about 2 million units across Canada. So, we're in a shortfall right now, and that shortfall is going to grow if we don't do something about housing supply. And what that means for Canadians, whether you're a renter or a potential home buyer, is prices of rents, prices of homes is likely to go up over the next five or 10 years as opposed to come down and become more affordable. So there's a real risk that 
our housing crisis is going to get worse if we don't get that supply built in. So that's that's what keeps me up in, at, at night, and that would be my biggest worry and what I would leave people with to think about because it's an urgent problem. Romy, last word to you. So, you know, when we put out big numbers like 5.8 million or 2, 2 million apartment units, it sounds like a, a daunting problem. But I, I'd like to just point out that uh, Canada has built ho- housing at this scale before. It's not a new thing. If we work together as a country, if we think about, uh, you know, really uh, allocating our maximum resources to solving this problem, it's something that's very doable. So I want to end with a, a a note of optimism that uh, we have the capabilities within our country to address it so that every Canadian has a home that meets their needs and that's affordable. And it's important for social inclusion, for building the kind of society that we want, but it's also important for economic prosperity. As Bob mentioned, we cannot uh, succeed economically in the 21st century without Canadians having the housing that they need. And 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 I think that's really the bottom line. And I hope that uh, you know having conversations like that really uh, sends this message across Canadian society, so that we can all work together to resolve this problem together. Romy Bob, thank you so much for your time and insight today. Thank, thank you. you. Romy Bowers is the president and CEO of the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Bob Dugan is its chief economist. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.